So I just presumed that the student was coming to see me because they had something they wanted to, you know, get my advice or guidance or maybe I can help them with a job or something else. I meet this guy for lunch and, you know, you know, I taught him like a decade earlier. And I said, so listen, I just wanted to check. Is there anything I can do to help you? And he said, no. So why are you here? He said, you know, your class had such an impact on me that ever since I left, I promised myself that one day I would come back and thank you in person. Podcast Junkies, episode 310. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. If you are new to this show, welcome. This is the one where we seek out interesting voices in podcasting, get them to kick back their heels, talk about their shows, and coincidentally, whatever else might be on their mind. And sometimes that's the best part of the conversation. If you are new to the show, welcome, welcome, welcome. We always love to roll out the carpet, the red carpet, the yellow carpet for listeners. I would love to learn how you found this show. If this is your first time listening, as always, you can reach me at harry at podcastjunkies.com. In case you missed last week's episode, we had a great conversation with Melvin Varghese. He's the founder at Selling the Couch. We were introduced via Jeremy Enns, who's also a past guest, and Melvin's got a great story of how he's taken his practice and transformed it into an extremely profitable online course for podcasters, specifically for therapists. It's a really fascinating and inspiring story, and I love uh, Melvin's energy level, so I know you'll enjoy that one. Episode 309. This week, I speak with Ranjay Gulati. He's the host of Deep Purpose, and he's a Harvard Business School professor and best-selling author. On the show, Ranjay digs in behind the headlines and the success stories of the top global CEOs and gets into their personal stories and gets them to reveal how their journeys ultimately connect back to their organization's purpose. Building on insights in Ranjay's similarly titled book, the podcast also shows how practicing Deep Purpose can revolutionize businesses and deliver performance benefits to reward employees, communities, and beyond. I truly appreciated the opportunity to learn more about Ranjay, and it was interesting to hear him speak about the humbling realization that there's a lot more to learn in life and the importance of sharing one's purpose with others, but not forcing it on them. Throughout the conversation, it was really interesting to see how he's realized that he knows less than he thought he did about everything and how sometimes there's a disconnect between how the world sees us and how we see ourselves. Really enjoyed this conversation. It really had me thinking about the definition of meaning and how I can apply that in my life. And I think you'll come away from this conversation with some interesting thoughts for your own life to ponder as well, which is always one of my goals with this podcast. I want to remind you, if you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies. The hopper's a little low, so I want to make sure we read those out on future episodes. As always, I'll give a plug for new podcast apps. If you're looking for ways to support creators directly, and in this case, podcasters, look at the great work that's being done by the folks at podcastindex.org. And if you're feeling adventurous, try out those new apps. And as always, this is a value for value enabled show. So if you're using one of the new podcast 2.0 apps, by all means, send over some boostergrams and satoshis, and we'll be sure to read those out on future episodes as well. Stay tuned to the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. And before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Ranjay, here are a few words from the folks that support this show. So Ranjay Gulati, professor at Harvard Business School and bestselling author of Deep Purpose and the host of the Deep Purpose podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on Podcast Junkies. Thank you so much, Harry. Pleasure to be here with you today. So where's home for you? Home is Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. 
what's the weather been like? <laughs> it's the top qu the question on everyone's mind. You have a storm brewing and it's cloudy, rainy, overcast. Winter is here. If you had any doubt about that, the winter has shown us that it's definitely here. Yeah, someone who grew up in New York, so familiar with the East Coast weather, and now all Minneapolis home, that takes it to another level. <laughs> There's something, yeah, we're actually headed, I looked at the, the forecast, we're headed into single digit weather. So that's next level winter, as far as I'm concerned. Next level winter. I lived in the Midwest and I, exactly, that's a good way to describe it. You know, I thought I knew what cold was. No, I did not know what cold was. So I'm curious as in doing a bit of research on you and trying to understand like how you ended up hosting a podcast on this topic. Maybe just rewinding the clock a little bit. I know you were, were you home as originally India? Yes, originally from India, yeah. And then the, the majority of your studies were here in the States and at Harvard as well. And um, was that always the plan when you think about your mindset back at that in those days when you were studying in India, that the goal was eventually to make it to the States and complete your studies here? No, I think it was a series of mishaps, accidents, curiosity, and really serendipity that landed me where I am. And I wish I would say it was a well-planned strategy and I ended up where I did. And now I've lived more than half my life in the U.S. So, you know, you cross an inflection point in your life when you suddenly realize that I've lived more than half my life in my, you know, adopted birth, adopted home, more than my native birthplaces. So, you know, I'm a, I think of myself as truly an Indian American. So <laughs> how often do you get back home? I go back home, I would say once a year. Okay. I used to go more often, but now I go about once a year. Do you remember, I was actually born in El Salvador, but I, I came here when I was a year old. And so I'm a, a child of, I'm actually an immigrant, <laughs> but mainly consider myself a child of immigrants. Do you remember a bit of the, anything that comes to mind in terms of the culture shock when you first landed here? Yeah. You know, the first thing I love was culture shock here was that everyone had choice about everything. I mean, I went to a Baskin Robbins and they're like, what flavor do you want? And I'm like, <laughs> what? In India, you could get chocolate, vanilla and strawberry occasionally. You know, strawberry was a luxury. Oh my God, they have strawberry flavor. It was chocolate or vanilla. So I realized America was a country of choice. People had all kinds of choices, even personal choices. Everything was a choice, you know? Yes. And India was much more scripted in some ways, you know, because maybe it was resource scarcity. It was a more, you know, conservative society. There were just social norms. Labor markets are tighter. It was just a different place. So... And I came to the West Coast, so it was different for me. Also, I came to a small town, Washington State, to Pullman, Washington. So it was really in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the Palouse wheat fields. And, but it was beautiful because I really got to know a lot of great people who were very welcoming to me, and I'm very grateful for that. What do you miss most from home? Food. That's <laughs> right. I know I have family and friends. You know, I have very good friends and family. I don't get to see as often as I would like. So for a lot of folks in higher education, Harvard is the pinnacle of where you want to arrive at when it comes to your studies. Do you remember the day you got accepted, what that was like? So I came to study here and yeah, I mean, it was quite extraordinary because, you know, beyond my imagination that I'd ever be studying at Harvard and let alone teaching there one day. And so, yeah, no, even now, sometimes I step back and ask myself, like, you know, I don't know, I, you know. Yeah, sure, I worked hard, but so do other people work hard too. Maybe I am consider myself to be able to think through, but so do others. But, you know, one now that I'm here, you know, what is incredible about this place is that, you know, we our purpose statement, our mission at Harvard Business School is we educate leaders who make a difference in the world. 
And of course, every organization has a purpose statement. We actually really believe it. We really believe that we are privileged with the position and the resources made available to us. And that with that privilege comes responsibilities. And our responsibility is to educate leaders who make a difference in the world. And so that, I think, becomes a key factor to keep in mind. And I think that's something we take very seriously. When did you know that teaching was going to be an integral part of your legacy at Harvard? You know, research always was an integral part of my thinking, you know, because in academia, you know, as we say, publish or perish. And so there's an incentive structure that really drives you towards publishing your research, especially early in your career. How teaching came to, you know, I was always a decent teacher. I would never say I had made it my calling, if I may say so. And I had kind of an unusual experience uh, quite a long time ago, maybe 15 odd years ago. You know, my assistant sent me a called me and came to me and said that, listen, one of your former students wants to come and see you. I said, fine, make an appointment. And, you know, my appointments are usually 30 minutes. And so I said, go ahead, make an appointment. That's fine. No problem. And then my assistant came back and said, no, this person is saying they want more time. So I'm like, okay, I have a re I'm teaching. I'm so busy right now. And then my assistant said, look, they actually want to have lunch with you. So now I'm like, <laughs> I said, do I have appointments? Yeah, you'll have to cancel your other lunch and, you know, do this. So I'm thinking, I said, you know. It's better be good. <laughs> coffee or something like that. And then my assistant said, look, I checked. And this person is actually, is flying in from out of town just to see you. So maybe, you know, they're coming just to see you for an hour. So maybe, you know, maybe we'll cancel your other lunch and swap it to a different day. And that's fine. I said, okay, fine, do it. So I just presumed that the student was coming to see me because they had something they wanted to, you know, get my advice or guidance, or maybe I can help them with a job or something else. You know, I always feel I, I'm here to be of service and support my students. That's always been true for me. So at least that's what I learned from my mentors, because that's the way they always taught me pay it forward. So I meet this guy for lunch and, you know, and I don't remember him. You know, I taught him like a decade earlier. And I said, so yeah, chatting and just socializing. And I said, so listen, I just wanted to check, is there anything I can do to help you? And he said, no. So then I'm kind of delicately, diplomatically probing like, so why are you here? Like, he said, you know, your class had such an impact on me that ever since I left, I promised myself that one day I would come back and thank you in person. And so I'm here keeping that promise. I'm a little stunned because I said, I never realized that what we do makes such a difference in people's lives. And then I thought about all the people who taught me, who had had a profound impact on me. So right after that, I went on a mission of thinking about all the teachers who made a difference in my life. And I wasn't able to go visit each one of them, but I called each one of them to just tell them that, you know what? And one of them was in a retirement home and I said, who are you? I said, hi, I'm, you know, you taught me. Oh, okay, when? I'm like, you know, 20 years ago, and okay, ha, yeah, what's up? And I'm like, you know, I just want to thank you. So anyway, so that was my story into recognizing that teaching was an integral part of my existence. I think it's important. And I think we sometimes discount the impact we have on people's lives until an event like this happens. And it causes us to reflect, to your point, on the mentors who have been important for us and who have really shaped us. And a lot of times we take something from this one person and something from this other person, and we don't realize we're building up sort of vision for what we think the world should be and, and how we want to live life. And it's and it's a direct reflection of the impact of, that all these people have had over the course of the many years and decades that they've, you know, you've had experience your time with them. 
Yeah. No, absolutely. I think is so that was a very humbling and stunning moment for me, but it had a huge effect on me. Have you always thought about the concept of legacy or, you know, leaving an imprint on the world? And you know, obviously with the work that you've done at Harvard, the teaching, all the students you've impacted, some who may never reach out and some you may never even know about, the books you've published and now with the podcast, is that something ever that crosses your mind? No, you know, honestly, I never thought about it. And I'll tell you when I started to think about it, when I wrote this book about purpose. Okay. Because purpose forces you to think about why you're here. And the more you think about why you're here, a corollary question of that is that, you know, well, what is the legacy you want to create? So suddenly it creates all these other elements that go with the why you're here question. And even though I was studying at an organizational level, why are organizations here? But a lot of people talk about why am I here, right? And I think is I've come to realize that if you look at the definition of purpose, it's the, a stable and generalized intention to accomplish something that is meaningful to the self and consequential for the world beyond the self. So we all want to, somehow we may measure our impact, as people like to call it. What's my impact? What's my footprint? And we measure our impact in different ways. Some of us measure our impact by our bank balance, or some of us measure our impact through our kids. Some of us measure our impact through, you know, the big things. Oh, some of us measure the impact through little things. You know, again, as we get older, you get a little more perspective into this. And I've come to realize that, you know, impact isn't always through big things. Measurable is noticeable through big things. You say, oh, look at my, my accomplishment and look at my CV or look at my, I think. And impact doesn't have to give a payback. The other part of impact is we think of payback. And the moment we think of payback, like even recognition payback. I need my name on the building, you know, I need my name on that, you know, announce my name on the stage and uh, don't forget to say that I was one of your big donors. I want my name on that plaque. So, you know. How much of your worldview or the lens through which you see the world has been colored by your experience growing up? So I would say, of course, we're all impacted by our childhood and experiences, right? And it's interesting because when I did this podcast series with these leaders, I interviewed 10 CEOs from around the world. And I was asking about their business and their company and what they did and all that. But I also then explored with each other, like, tell me about your childhood. And how did that inform who you are today as a leader? I mean, Sim Shabalala grew up in a slum in Soweto. That informs who he is as a leader today. Ross Brewer grew up in a middle-class household in Detroit. And her father worked in an auto plant as a manager, floor manager. And that informed and shaped who she is as a leader today. You know, I can go on and on about every single leader. David Velez grew up on a farm in South America, you know, Woodstatton too. And so you talk to each of these and they'll tell you that how, you know, we all are very much impacted by where we grew up, the people we grew up with, our parents, but also others around us. And yeah, for me, you know, my where and how I grew up is very, very important part of who I am. I mean, I learned about business watching my mother. My mother was building a business while I was a kid. I got to watch right in my living room where she ran the business from how a business gets started. So, I mean, I worked every summer. I mean, my entire teenagehood years were spent working every summer, all summer long. So, you know, I learned a lot about that from watching her. I watched my father, you know, I went to a boarding school. I learned a lot from going to my boarding school. So I think all of us pick up cues and ideas, you know, mental models of how we want to be and what we want to do. Some of them are good. Some of them are not. 
some of them are baggage, right? We yeah. struggle our whole life to shed them, saying, God, I want to get that. I have a bunch of those that I want to let go of, but I can't. It becomes so embedded into us that it's... Old habits die hard. Oh, yeah. So shaking off those are not easy. You mentioned something I read is that you traced the book back to an intellectual crisis you experienced about a decade ago. Can you tell the story behind that? Well, you know, I was never on purpose. I mean, this was like a real fluff topic for me. And because mission statements, purpose, I mean, we call it touchy-feely, you know, in our parlance. Yeah, and I'm a math, computer science, economics undergraduate. And, uh, but, you know, the more I probed, and purpose used to be this kind of left-wing, woke topic, Ben and Jerry's, Patagonia, that kind of fringy topic. It wasn't mainstream, but then I started to see it actually going mainstream. And companies were saying, my purpose is helping us do better as a firm. Purpose drives performance. In fact, Indra Nui at Pepsi even coined the phrase performance with purpose. Satya Nadella at Microsoft said, you know, purpose was the unlock. And I looked at small companies also. That as they grew, when founders say, oh my God, our company has lost its soul. You know, we're no longer the good old days. We were like a family, you know, we all were. And I'm like, what exactly? And I came to realize that some of that had to do with purpose also. That we were so purposeful and intentional about what we were trying to do. And many, not all, many successful startups don't start by the idea, we want to make a lot of money. They start by like, we want to have an impact. We want to change the way the world does X, whatever that X might be. And so I think, you know, to me, there was learning over here in terms of, you know, understanding how this really, you know, so. And so as you started to put this idea together, you've authored several books and, and I'm curious about your path as an author. How has that evolved over time and how much work goes into, you know, the ideas that make up the books that you've published? So, you know, I was very fortunate to have amazing sets of advisors for my doctoral research, each of whom brought very distinct but extremely valuable skills to the table for me. My one advisor was Paul Lawrence, who was professor at Harvard Business School, whose idea was you have to study important problems. And important means important to the world. So find what's important in the world today. So don't just go study something that tickles you. Find something that really matters to the world because Whatever you find will be of interest to the world. And Paul studied many very, very different things. So some people in academia just do one thing and they keep plowing at the same thing again and again and again all their life. Paul was always very curious. What's happening in the world? What is the problem we want to solve that everybody wants to understand? So that was one his message to me. The second message came to me from my other advisor was Owa Sorensen. And Owa Sorensen was in sociology, a sociologist, and he was a quantitative sociologist. And for him, important problem was very important, but he also cared about rigor. His idea was, you know, if you're going to make any claims, you need to have rigorous research to back it up. Quantitative or qualitative, whatever it may be, rigor. And my third advisor was Nathan Noria, who's on our faculty, was our dean till recently. And his idea was always that, you know, you need to be able to connect theory and practice, what he would call practical theory, that you can't have theory for theory's sake. And so he was the bridge across. And so that was my learning. You know, that went into them giving you a long answer. But a book, when you start to think about a book, it's not an overnight project. I mean, this thing, you know, I will tell you that for me, I would say that from start to finish, it's been about a four and a half, almost five year project. And so nothing, you know, there are people who can bang out books in three months, six months. 
I spent about two years just researching the topic. I had to do the rigor, right? I wanted to get the nailed on the problem properly. And then there was the, you know, theory and practice and linking it all. So it turned out to be writing the book itself, I would say is a three and a half years to do that. But, you know, there was a lot of preamble, writing a proposal and doing all that. And, you know, you're crafting an idea. First of all, you have to craft what's the problem you want to solve, right? The problem you want to solve. Then you figure out what's the, what is the, how do you understand the problem? Then you look for solution problem. Then you look for storage problem. Then you got to craft, how do you tell it in a compelling way that people will understand? In a new way, right? <laughs> yeah, new, fresh, and interesting way. And in a world of short attention span, you know, you need to be able to grab people. So how do you do that? And I think this is, all this ties together. Do you find the, the writing process has improved with each book or it's still the same rigor and the same challenge every time you pick up the pen? You know, writing never gets easier, right? I think there are different ways of thinking about that process. Some people like to say, I don't know what I think till I write. So I got to write it and then I'll know what I'm thinking. So writing is a cathartic process. I just got to write it out. So I'm going to do a download and then it'll be a horrible bunch of ramblings and I'll pull it together into a draft. Others are the other way around. I need to think about it. I need to organize it. I need to outline it. And then I'll write it. And I think is this is always a kind of a perennial challenge. Was the plan always for this book to do the podcast and the book at the same time? I had no plans to do a podcast. You know, what you discover is book publishing is a long lag process, right? Yeah. From the time you finish your book to the time it shows up in print is almost nine to 12 months. So I finished my book and I am now lecturing about it and I'm learning more and I want to add it to my book, but I can't. Too late. And then I discover there's some amazing companies also doing amazing things. And I'm like, I wish I had included them in my book, but I had no. And then I realized there's more for me to learn. In spite of interviewing 258 people for my book, I felt that that phenomenon topic was moving so fast. There was so much more to learn. So this podcast really began as me wanting to have conversations with leaders that would be compelling. And I found there was a lot to learn. And so you can't just pick up the phone and say, hey, I want to talk to you. Can you spend an hour with me? You know, so yeah, the podcast became a plan. And I wanted to share it with others. So it turned into an incredible experience. Incredible in terms of just the, the journey, the conversations. And I learned so much about some incredible people. Yeah. Had you been listening to a lot of podcasts prior to starting this or when did they come on your radar? Full confession, I was <laughs> irregular, inconsistent listener to podcasts till I did one. I became much more frequent after that. I would say I listened to two different podcasts regularly, but I wasn't like I got 10 lined up and I'm going to be downloading 10 of them. And it was like I had two, maybe a third one that I would be a regular listener on, but that was my capacity, you know. And now, you know, I've come to realize people have, there's so much to learn. And I have to tell you, every single conversation with every single leader I had, there was a nugget. There was a gift. You know, these are, in, when you talk to extraordinary people, each of them has something valuable to share. And I'm a big believer in vicarious learning, learning through the experiences of others. You don't have to do everything yourself. So it was powerful because you talk about their past, you talk about their crucible moments, you talk about what shaped them. You talk about what made them a leader. How did they become a leader? Everybody wants to be a leader. Why you? Why do you think you got picked? And then you talk about how do you approach your job as a leader? Like, what's the challenges today? Like, what do you do? In markets that are so highly uncertain, we don't know if we're going to have a recession or not. We don't know what is a hard landing, soft landing, no landing. 
who knows what learning how do you plan and how does your own experience journey shape how you think about the world because i have to tell you that i make a full confession i have gone back and listened to my own podcast a couple of, because i'm like i got a lot to learn here how much experience had you had interviewing folks prior to the show that i had quite a lot of okay not on recorded format because about 10 years ago i took over as chair of our senior leader program in the school and as part of that i would invite ceos to class and most of the time i'd just do a panel discussion moderated interview with them i get on the stage when sit down and i do a little power with them and i'll do my homework preparing for that interview so i had done i don't know 150 of these and and then i did three cnn interviews as part of blackrock and they were one was deepak chopra one was the ceo of starbucks one was the ceo of best buy one hour conversation that were compressed down to like 5 minutes not even 5 four and a half minutes and and they had six and a half million views so this was like stunning i was like oh my god no not many are reading my book okay so i got to get the message out in whatever form and i got to learn and there's so much more to learn because those three alone taught me so much more i'm like i can i be draw my book <laughs> i want to add some more material to it so i just want to do it in a podcast i'm just you know what it'll be companion and it was really a illuminating experience can you talk a little bit about the pre-production process to the extent that you know there's details you can share given that this is a show where we talk about podcasting so it's it's relevant for this audience absolutely i hired a, somebody who worked in marketplace and i hired an ra who was also excellent so you know my ra started to do background research started to write out the questions you know the producer would look at the questions saying these are too many questions very bring it down and we're fortunate we have a really high quality studio in harvard so we have a top of the line studio that is on campus so i would do the recording over there and then the producer would help me edit it down and the editing process was painful because you have to decide to cut some things out and you know each conversation was an hour long and so the conversation part was easy and fun okay the editing part was hard because having a producer by your side who can make the cuts you yourself don't want to cut anything you know everything seems equally important somewhat dispassionate person who is willing to take the red pen and say cut and i think that was very tough how have you improved as an interviewer from this experience i think a lot i mean it was so helpful to me i mean i had to learn to listen i needed to learn to ask probing questions i needed to learn not to interrupt and i needed to you know genuinely listening we listen sometimes to react i'm not really listening i'm like formulating the next question uh, or the comment i want to make and understanding what it really means because only when you genuinely listen can you get the other person to open up Yeah, it's an idea that I've done over 300 interviews on this show and I think it's definitely made me a better listener. I've learned to be comfortable with silence because sometimes you'll ask a question that involves some thought and the guest is trying to figure out which answer to give you. <laughs> you know, the the quick answer or the honest answer and so you have to bite your tongue and you know, give them that space and create a safe environment where they feel like it's appropriate to share and that's something that comes with experience and something that I'm still trying to get better at. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think is that, you know, especially on the personal question. Leaders are very comfortable talking about their company. They've got that whole shit down. You know, they've done that 150 times. They do it day in day out all day long. 
they can tell you the strategy of the company and the organization, even the purpose of the mission of the company, how they rolled out the mission and how they've done that, how the culture is aligned with the strategy and the purpose and all this good stuff. They'll like, they can get you through that, right? I think it's when you talk about themselves, some of them are not comfortable going there anyway, first of all, at all. Others are willing to go there, but you've got to give them the space to process because you're actually getting them to remember and recall. And if you're rapid fire, you're not creating that and you're trying to make it safe and comfortable for them to reveal. And some things that are suppressed memories also. You're like, I don't remember that part. So Sim Shabalana talked about, uh, you know, as he was talking, he says, you know, I just remember this Jesuit priest when I was in school. And, you know, here's what I learned from him. And why was it so important? There's an emotional component for those experiences, especially the ones that have had a significant impact on someone's life. So not only is there a recall involved, there could be an associated emotional connection that may just be coming alive for them in that moment. So that's something to recognize as well. Absolutely. There's this kind of emotional resonance that, you know, you're reliving that moment as you're describing that moment to the person. And you need to create the space for them to relive that moment rather than recount it for you and just give it to you as kind of a verbiage. And I think that is so hard. And I think that was, I would say the biggest learning for me was creating, you know, I'm used to rapid fire conversations, you know, and we get impatient. Come on, get with the program. And uh, I think creating the space, as you said, silent. And it is through those kinds of silent spaces and moments that I think people then are able to really relive, recount, and engage with you at a more profound level. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree. So having gone through this experience, now you have the book published, now you have the podcast episodes published. Have you given some thought about, you know, where you want this, what's next? What do you hope to achieve? And have you thought about what success looks like with this endeavor? You know, at one level, you all people measure success in kind of very narrow terms. Download. Come on, let's get down to it. What's the downloads, eyeballs, sales, whatever number you use, you know, there's a kind of a measure there, a quantitative measure, the quantity of people who you touched. I mean, I don't disagree with that. I think it's natural, normal. I think it's the right thing to do, but I think there's also quality. You know, sometimes there are things you touch fewer people, but you have a higher impact. In my podcast case, I feel I've been lucky because I just got the data, you know, the downloads have been phenomenal. And the repeat, you know, going across episodes is phenomenal, but it's not me. You know, the one thing I have also learned in this podcast is not me. I may be the host on the podcast. They are not coming to listen to me. They don't want to know my story. I'm not the star of the show. The star of the show is the guests, their stories. So I might pat myself on the back saying, how many downloads you got, Ranjay? It wasn't me. And it's their story. So I feel you're, I'm a medium to just channel and help them tell their story and provide them a platform to tell, I think, a really impactful story. That was another piece of this whole, when you say impact. So for me, it was like, wow, what an amazing story. I hope people are going to, you know, listen to this. Yeah, you provided a safe space, a container for them to share these stories. So as much as the content, the majority of their content comes from them, there is this synergy that happens when you're having that experience that you're co-creating together. Absolutely. And so, you know, have you thought, has this given you aspirations to continue down the podcasting path with another season or another show? You know, I'm toying with the idea. 
but I'm trying to figure out how I want to spend my time right now. I'm trying to write another book. I'm teaching a new course. So there are only so many hours in a day and I have to kind of figure out where's the best use of my time. And that's the part that I'm struggling with. So it's been a lot of fun and a lot of learning, but a lot of time. You know, this is not costless. I mean, this is pretty, pretty time intensive. And I think, so I have to figure out whether and where I will take this next. Given the topics you've covered in the book and on the show, has this experience changed your perspective about what your purpose in life is? Oh, I mean, I don't know if it's changed it, but it's really clarified it. And I think is, you know, one of my regrets in life is that I wish I had thought about purpose earlier in life. You know, you always kind of postpone this kind of in questions. One day I'll do it, an existential navel-gazing exercise. Why I'm too busy right now, I'm a man of action. I don't have time for this kind of contemplation, introspection, reflection. I'll do it when I'm sitting on a rocking chair on my front porch. And, you know, that never comes and, you know, you kind of keep going. I think I've, you know, and I've been inspired by these, you know, listening to amazing stories, it elevates your own ambition. It makes you think, wow, I can also think of myself as bigger than who I am. I can also have a more expansive view of the impact I want to have on the world around me. I'm curious if with all the experience you've had in management and all your experience teaching at Harvard, had you ever given any thought to starting your own company? No, I advise companies. I advise entrepreneurs. I've worked with many of them, but it's not my cup of tea. And I'm curious also, as you talked about, you were explaining this idea of how it's changed your vision of your purpose in life. Is that something that you're conscious of when you're having conversations with your family (laughs) and having them think about, you know, what the future holds for them? You know, yeah. I think when you bring purpose into your life or intention into your life, you can't help but share it with others as well. But you can't preach to others. I think everybody has to be ready at the right stage and age in their life to... So are my kids writing their purpose statements? No. So, and will they one day? I hope so. But it's not something you can force on anybody. And, you know, but it makes you more purposeful and I think people get to see it. So, you know, I think the thing becomes then is one of, uh, do they get to see what you're doing and that hopefully will shape them. Yeah, live a life by example. A couple of questions as we wrap up. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? Oh, what have I changed my mind about recently? I have realized I know a lot less than I think I think I do about everything. Okay, so that's one thing for sure. I told you it's humbling when you recognize, listening to others. You know, there's a lot more to learn out there. So at no stage, you know, you got to kind of keep your feet on the ground. That's one thing. I think I told you earlier, impact is not measured by big things only, but by small things as well. So that's been a big learning to me. Yeah, I think the other thing is that, you know, yeah, those are the two. What's the most misunderstood thing about you? Misunderstood thing about me. I think all of us are misunderstood by the world. We know that. There's data to show that. That the world, the way others see us is not the way we see ourselves. The question is, are they misunderstanding me or am I misunderstanding myself? So the asymmetry exists. The question is, who's wrong? Thank you for that perspective. Ranjay, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was, it was really interesting to hear about your journey and where this has taken you and some of the insights that you learned from your experiences with these leaders and how that's shaped, you know, you changing your ideas about 
what's important and what purpose looks like. And I think the book is going to be a great reading for folks as well as the podcast. And so I just appreciate everything you've shared with my audience today. And I applaud you on your journey. And I think there's much more, much more things to come because as you mentioned, you're working on another book as well. Well, thank you so much, Harry. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. You asked me great questions and I learned a lot from talking to you. So thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it. We'll send folks to thepurpose.net to learn more about the book, and we'll make sure any of the links and resources we included in the show notes as well. So we'll make sure those are available. Thank you very much. So thanks again to Ranjay for coming on the show. I really appreciate the flexibility with his team and setting up this appointment. I know he's been busy making the rounds, promoting the podcast and the book, and I really appreciate him providing some insightful and thoughtful answers to some of the questions I had asked him. And you can tell from the depth of the response that he really gave it some thought, which I appreciate. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil, cedarsoil.com for his complete catalog. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, Focusrite, and their awesome line of gear, specifically the new Vocaster. I'm a big fan of the Vocaster 2, which I'm using right now. You can learn more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash Vocaster. Podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more about how a podcast can be beneficial for you or your brand at fullcast.co. Tune in next week for my conversation with Hector Santiesteban. He is a fellow podcaster, podcast producer, fellow Latino, and we've been connecting a lot on Twitter and finally figured out some time where we could have a conversation, and I'm glad we did. I learned a lot about his background, his passion for podcasting, and I'm excited to share that with you next week. If you've made it this far, no doubt you're waiting for this week's retention hashtag. Let's go with hashtag meaning Ranjay, M-E-A-N-I-N-G-R-A-N-J-A-Y. And you can tag me at podcast underscore junkies and Ranjay at Ranjay Gulati. Thanks for all you do to support the show. Talk to you next week.